Hello, and welcome to this series of WebF Podcasts, where we explore some of the key issues around the built and natural environment with leading experts. I am Sybil Taunton, Head of Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion for RICS. In today's podcast, we're joined by Sharon Slinger, Founding Director of Constructing Rainbows and an RICS Fellow, Vanessa Curtis, Corporate Real Estate Professional at CBRE and Co-Founder of AbilityRE and an RICS Fellow, and Jean Hewitt, Accessibility and Inclusive Environment Specialist at Borough Happold, UK Government Disability and Access Ambassador and Trustee for Changing Places International. Today, we'll be talking about accessibility and inclusion and why both should be priorities for all built environment professionals. Let's roll into the questions. Vanessa, I'm going to head your way first. Why should accessibility be a priority for all professionals, particularly those working in the built environment? Okay, so there's um, there's a couple of things that I think we need to talk about there. I think the first thing is that as a profession, we keep being told that there is a war on talent. And I think what we really mean by that is that there is a restriction in the talent pipeline of ready-made surveyors coming to us from a few key universities that have the privilege to select candidates from the best schools who tend to have exams to get into them. They produce candidates who think like us, they look like us, and generally we don't have to invest as much time into training them up or giving consideration to whether we or not we have actually set them up and enabled them to succeed. But we know that there's about 78,000 disabled students going into universities every year. And we know that there are about 50% of disabled adults in the UK are unemployed, but available and willing to work. And we know that about one in seven of us is neurodiverse. So the approach to written exams or application forms or interviews might be different. And we also know that multiple studies have shown that sort of diverse businesses are more profitable And yet we still revert back to our our perfect candidates from perfect universities when we're looking at grad intakes. And we still revert back to the perfect candidates with perfect industry experience and background for the more senior roles that we need to fill. And I would argue that it's this view that's creating our problems with our talent pipeline. And that actually, if we looked at skill sets and what is really needed for a role, we would have a lot of other talent pipelines that we can tap into. So I think that's the first thing. On a separate note, I I truly also believe that the lack of diversity within our industry has a knock-on effect on the infrastructure and the buildings that we design and we build and we manage, which inadvertently then creates further barriers within our society. You know, it's, it's a bit kind of vicious circle And I I truly believe that if we improve the diversity of our industry, particularly in relation to disability or impairments or neurodiversity, we will gradually broaden our understanding of the barriers that able-bodied and neurotypical people don't perceive because it doesn't present a challenge for them. And that this in turn will improve the accessibility and usability of the buildings and the community spaces and the infrastructure that we design and we build and manage in the future. And that has to have a benefit right across our society. Great. Thank you. Jean, over to you next. At what point should accessibility and inclusion be factored into projects in the built environment? And how should that be factored in to planning? 
It's, it's absolutely got to be there from concept stage. We should be thinking inclusively, thinking about people from the moment we have an idea for a new building or the moment we think we are taking an existing structure and trying to enhance it in some way. And that therein lies the issue that quite often, I mean, I've been 21 years in this industry and quite often I'm brought in at stage two or three and sometimes even stage four. And uh, really, it needs to be there from concept stage. It's so much harder to bring it in later. It costs more money. It's, it's you know, doing anything retrospectively is never going to be as good as it would be when the idea has been there from the start. So I think coming back to the point just made about, you know, having people with diverse user needs amongst the design team is really helpful. But I think also it kind of needs to be on the agenda. And, you know, town planning and the planning regime is, is key for, for some buildings, like the new build. But if it's a refurbishment, you may not be touching the outside at all and you won't have that. And then by the time they're considering building regs, which is really, really basic, it's just not enough. So I think the more we can get it in front end would be helpful. And I think some of it comes back to education as well. So we have a shortage of inclusive design specialists in the country anyway. So we have to kind of spread the message further and wider amongst the whole built environment profession, landscape designers, surveyors, planners, a facility management and everything. And that there's been a few attempts to do this and they haven't been entirely successful in that they've got some optional modules on, on learning in their, in, their prof, in their programs, but not anything mandatory. And I think we really need to have kind of very grassroots, fundamental awareness right back at that basic level to try and get it make it influence everyone so even your your developer and the person funding the project they will have it on their agenda anyway they will know that a building that is not inclusive is not going to serve the market well it's not going to create such a a portfolio of wealth for them and it's not going to serve people well so it's not going to be so flexible it will become obsolete very quickly if they don't do it so so many reasons why this has to be done and start a concept stage. Absolutely. Thank you. Sharon, what other factors beyond accessibility should make a a space or community more inclusive? Yeah, I think other than um, accessibility, there's other inclusion aspects that you can look at when you're designing buildings and open spaces. So, for example, looking at things like, you know, breastfeeding facilities for new parents coming in, uh, prayer rooms, and, and thinking about things like gender-neutral facilities for the trans community and non-binary community, all these things should be starting to be factored into buildings these days. There's also other areas such as thinking about artwork. You know, the, there's been a big push on the, looking at the, the, the statues in city centres. You know, so many of them are, are men. And there's looking at now how we can include more diverse people in, in the artwork as well. There's also looking at things like security in open spaces. You know, do people feel secure? For example, the gay community feel secure in being open about themselves in in these open spaces. There's a big push around women's safety as well. And there there are some really good publications out there, which I think we're probably going to put on the, you know, link to, such as Arup have done a queering public spaces document, which has got some really good ideas in it. The UN Women are doing a Safer Spaces Now campaign, and that's a global campaign to make cities more safe for women. And I think Arup, again, were doing some, uh, uh, producing a, a women's public spaces document as well. So they've been doing some research on that. So I think, as Jean says, it's about like taking the information that's out there already 
and really starting to bring it into our designs at that early stage. And as a QS, yeah, get it in early because otherwise it'll cost more when you add it in later. Yeah, exactly. So you, you've both hit on some of the, the impact in terms of, of cost and in terms of addressing, you know, accessibility and inclusion considerations that were maybe missed in the beginning and having to retroactively work that into a design. Um, what are some of the other impacts uh, to the built environment if accessibility and inclusion are not at the forefront in that planning phase? I mean, you, you're going to exclude people at the, the, the most fundamental level, or you're going to not win customers. You're not going to have people using the building. They're going to have distressing experience or uncomfortable experience. I think the whole well-being aspect of this and people's mental and physical health is all hugely influenced by how the built environment is designed. And if we always aim for inclusion, that helps everybody, you know, so even someone who doesn't think of themselves as having a disability or any difference on their worst day when everything is not going well for them, all of those factors will also help that person who might otherwise, you know, be fairly okay in a constrained and badly designed building on another day. So, so that has to be the objective, I think. I think as well, we need to think about in its temporary state on construction sites. You know, a lot of us are construction professionals as well and making sure that, for example, we're not putting scaffold in the middle of the pavement and pushing people out into the roads who, who can't get round it. So I think there's, there's that pre-planning at the, at the construction stage as well to make sure that temporary state is, is accessible and inclusive. And we all know about you know, women's toilets on sites being used as storage facilities and there's still a lot of work to be done in that construction phase. But also build on that, you know, even when the, the building's finished, the average accessible toilet <laughs> ends up being the uh, the cleaning cupboard with the mop and everything. All that lovely space that's actually there for you to get your mobility device alongside the toilet so you can actually use it. But I think, you know, what really breaks my heart is that we have minimum standards. As an industry, obviously, we have to have standards for various reasons. But when it comes to sort of accessible design and construction, they are their minimum standards. And it breaks my heart when I go to speak to an organization and speak to them about accessibility and inclusion and they come up with, oh, but we're DDA compliant, which is kind of the standard answer. And my problem with that is that, you know, firstly, it is a minimum standard. And really, I don't think we should be aiming for the minimum standard. I think we should be aiming for best practice and lobbying to improve what the government views as a minimum standard. And also, I would say we should be looking at it from a perspective of, you know, we know that if we don't do it up front, we will have to go back, as Sharon said, and retrofit. And we know that that means that it's more restricted and what we can actually achieve at that point, it's more expensive. And my other bugbear is that it's all kind of down to this lovely legal wording about what's reasonable and quite often what's reasonable to the owner of a building who is probably fully able-bodied and is considering the cost versus what is reasonable for a person who is being excluded from full participation in society or accessibility to employment or basically just the everyday enjoyment of their life that the rest of us take for granted that's a very different reasonable. So it's really important that we get it right up front and consider those things in all of the spaces that we design. You know, there are one in five of us in the UK, 
typical narcissistics have a disability. And about 78% of those, we acquire those as an adult. Okay, so we might not have it now, but we're living longer than ever before. We're working longer than ever before. We need to be creating spaces that, you know, include everyone. I once heard somebody say that if we don't have a disability now, it could be that you're just on the waiting list for one, which might be a depressing way of looking at it. But actually, you know, as a society, we are living longer and wanting to kind of experience our life. We don't want to sit, you know, in a home because we're older. We want to still be able to enjoy our life. And, you know, we have the responsibility to design places that allow us to do that. And I, th- I think it's worth, you know, a- adding and emphasising, shall I say, that as built environment professionals, we have an impact on everybody's life. You know, everybody needs the built environment. And and actually, if we don't get it right, it can have an impact on the things that our clients are doing. For example, I mean, COP26, there was an Israeli MP, I think, couldn't get into COP26 because she had a wheelchair. And that's stopping her being able to contribute to, to climate change discussions. You know, there's these things happening all the time where we need those diverse people around the table. And if, if they're, you know, obstructed from getting there, then we're going to miss out as society. So a couple of things I'd like to say about standards as well. I mean, there are a lot out there. So there's the BSA 300, which has been a code of practice around oh, 2001, I think was the first edition, now 2018 edition, and it covers external and internal. And I sit on the committee for that, and we're about to review it again because it gets reviewed every five years. So there's that standard. And it does link. So it is linked in with the building regs. So when you're looking in, in a court of law about whether you've done a reasonable adjustment, you've done it well enough, it can be used as evidence to defend yourself, to say, well, look, we co- we followed this code of practice. So I think more people need to be aware of that and the benefits of following that from the front end. There's also, I've just been working with Bureau Hapold on a new PAS and a, and a fantastic steering group from across the country. Uh, and this is around neurodiversity and design. And I think that, again, is kind of raising the bar on this and saying, look, a proportion of the of society follows a societal norm, if you like, in brain type, uh, neurotypical. But the other 70% are going to be neurodivergent in some way, and they will experience through the senses the built environment in a very different way. And we need to be thinking about this. We cannot any longer expect everyone to kind of fit the stereotypical, you know, six foot odd man and ability and everything. We've got to move away from that. And there is a robustness in designing that way that really makes financial sense as well as moral and well-being sense as well. And and the standards are there. People just need to be aware of them and use them and not default line being building regs. You know, part M is is really, really very basic. Any building that is just following that, in my view, is is virtually failed and and it really needs to up its game. And I, I just think the awareness just doesn't seem to be there to follow these other standards. They don't necessarily cost more if you think about them early enough as well. Excellent. Thank you, Jean, for for sharing that. And I think there's, you know, something to be said about, you know, both of this, the side that, you know, Vanessa is coming from, you know, in terms of that guidance is is there, but it's guidance. It's a suggestion, you know, at the at the moment, you know, and how do we encourage, if not enforce more organizations to to strive for that best practice rather than the bare minimum. I think there's a lot to be said there about how we push the needle forward on that and more strongly encourage organizations to prioritize this a bit more heavily in 
the design and the planning of the built environment. What are some of the, if we can get a bit more tangible here for, you know, our listeners who are maybe early in on, on their journey of understanding accessibility uh, and inclusion, especially on the neurodiversity side is more recent conversations building around that. And so if we could, what are some of the kinds of questions that individual practitioners in the built environment should be asking themselves as they're taking on projects if you don't do anything else if you don't look at the stand please talk to the users the prospective users because the users will be uh have very rich information they will know what they want and every building is slightly different in terms of what the who the users might be and the way in which the building is going to be used but you know, in in the past 6463, one of the key things we talk about is flexibility, designing in flexibility for change, because we do repurpose buildings as well. We need to build in that flexibility from the front end. And if we can do that, um, that will take people a long way forward. But they need to bear in mind that even the London plan asks for BS8300 to be observed. So if you're in greater London area, you should already be looking at that as your minimum, not, not building regs. But anyway... I'll pass back to Sharon because I know she had something important to say there. No, I was just going to talk about having diverse teams and we've touched upon that already, but I think, and, and this isn't just, you know, your diverse design teams, your diverse construction teams, but actually diverse client teams because they're, you know, if they're pushing it from a procurement perspective because they realise how important it is because, you know, they've got lived experience of it, then, then it's more likely to get on the agenda and it's more likely to pass down the supply chain. I think, you know, there's some really good examples, you know, of number of toilets in theatres, uh, not, being, not being enough to get women through the toilets in the interval. And also there was an example of Apple designing a health app on the on the iPhone and completely missing the menstrual cycle off because it was an all-male uh, design team and it came out and people the women were like well where's the menstrual cycle on there and and actually they'd just not thought about it because it just wasn't on their radar so making sure that we have those diverse teams in place throughout the whole constru- planning construction process will really help and it's a, it's an area that we are struggling with in the built environment absolutely and I would um, build on that if I could and say you know, we then need to look not just at the built space, but then how that space is sort of internally designed and then managed and maintained as well, because that relies on sort of the FM and the maintenance and the asset managers to keep it, but also whoever is occupying the space to use it and have the right policies and procedures and governance in place to allow that sort of flexible environment to support those people. So within our own organisations in real estate and the built environment, we we need to ensure that we have all those governance and inclusive recruitment, you know, and basically just supporting the people to to A, get them into the industry and then, you know, B, keep them here and enable them to succeed because it will have a filter through effect. Absolutely. It's so true that an inclusive environment is going to need the right design, the right bills, and then it's got to be managed well in its occupancy. And then you've got to need a way. You know, and, and every part of that is an important part of the chain. And you you cannot get a holistically inclusive environment any other way. It's, it's got to be a fundamental mandatory component of everything. I think my favourite phrase that seems to keep popping up now is nothing about us without us. And I, I totally agree with that because everyone has a completely different 
personal experience and they experience space in different ways. Yeah, absolutely. What advice would you give professionals or organizations in helping increase their understanding of accessibility and inclusion, you know, whether it be recommended networks or consultants or books or podcasts, you know, what are some of the, you know, I get back to that, you know, quite a few professionals or, you know, or organizations are, are early in their journey, the built environment, you know, it's, it's well known that the built environment is behind a lot of other industries and getting our act together on diversity, equity, and inclusion. So for those that are early in that phase and, and have some learning to do to steer the direction they take on their policies and prioritization, what, what are your recommendations for those starting places? Where do you go first, especially when focusing on accessibility? I think for me, the starting point is a, is a want to learn. And there's a lot of people that aren't at that stage yet. And so it's actually encouraging people to want to learn more because there's loads of places you can go to learn more. There's loads of things that, you know, loads of groups out there that you can get in touch with, loads of documents out there that you could bring into your design. But if you've not want, if you've not got that want there, then you're not going to do it. Now, what's driving that, I think, in the industry at the moment is there's certain clients that are really pushing it and it's pushing it down the, the supply chain. I think people are really starting to pick up on the business case for, for diversity inclusion and the like. there are people that are actually now going, do you know what, it's going to positively impact our bottom line if we're looking at diversity inclusion. And that could be because it will help us win more work. It will help us retain staff. You know, it costs money to lose staff. It'll help you get the best people it'll help you kind of your whole reputation and help you innovate more so there's loads of different reasons why it's important for a business to be looking at it but if they don't know about it then they're not going to kind of be able to start that journey um so i think the more we talk about the business case the more important it is it's not just a nice to have it actually makes good business sense i would completely agree i'm going to chip in there and say that i think it's um it's really important that more and more clients, as Sharon says, are really kind of pushing this down the line onto all of their suppliers. And it's great for us to drive that. But actually, every single person within our, our organization or our industry just really needs to, to get curious, you know, get curious about the stuff that they don't know and, and be comfortable finding information out and learning things. You know, even if you're already at a very senior level in your business, there's always more that you can learn and bring into kind of the stuff that you're doing. And I think also we need to get more comfortable with being uncomfortable. I think people are shying away from conversations because they are afraid that they will, I don't know, use the wrong terminology or they will sort of, you know, open up a can of worms and then find that there's a whole pile of stuff that they should be doing that is going to be really difficult to do, what will cost them money. And so at the moment, because there are, as I said, sort of minimum regulations, it's easier not to have the conversations. But actually, if we truly want to understand, we need to start having those conversations, even if they do feel a little bit clunky at the beginning. I mean, unfortunately, at the moment, I think if you if you are really keen and hopefully people are, you know, maybe some people will be listening to this and think, well, where would I start? 
Design Council is a kind of introductory video on their website um, to inclusive design, but it's not going to take you down into the detail and then you've got to do some reading. But the Access Association do excellent CPDs and that's where most access professionals will go for their programs and their links and so on. And there's things like the National Register of Access Consultants as well. I mean, I teach, I've been a module lead for UCL, the Bartlett, on their health, wellbeing and sustainable buildings program for five years now. And every year the numbers are going up. So I started off with 14 students, MSc students a year. And this year I've got 36 and they're turning people away from all over the world. There just isn't enough training as well on this for people who want to take it in a deep way. But I kind of think everybody should, it should be on every program. And that was the agenda for the LL, the London Legacy funding to um, the BEAT project, which is Built Environment Professional Education Project. And that was finished about four or five years ago, I think, um, which was basically saying we want every professional body to embrace this within their qualification process. And they all did, but only as optional. So if they could only just up those modules to mandatory, that will help a lot of the built environment professionals to really get on board with this and not dismiss it as an option. Knowing about people and what people's needs are is so important. Like I just don't understand how it cannot be like a foundation module of anything, really. Yeah. And there are a lot of um, sort of informal you know, not formal CPD, but there's lots of videos out there. There's podcasts, there's books, you know, there are loads of webinars right now going on. You know, you see them on LinkedIn and you can sign up. Lionheart did one the other day on kind of introduction to neurodiversity. I mean, it was obviously a basic high level, but it still kind of gave you some of the impact. So, you know, if you wanted to find out some information or just grow your knowledge a little bit, there is information out there. Unfortunately, it's just in a, a lot of different places and you sort of have to go hunting for it. I was just going to to comment on that. I think what's a challenge in the, the DEI space is the lack of standardization and, and regulation, for lack of a better term, across the board in terms of what's on offer you know, the competency across the board and what the expectations are. And so that can be a, quite challenging and it, it then it becomes information saturation and it becomes difficult to find that starting place. I think this is a good, uh, this is just my my musings as I'm listening to this, you know, and, and coming from the perspective of, of RACS and, and how we can, you know, where our place is and, and driving that forward. And definitely on the CPD side of the house, it's something we should be taking on. But for the larger built environment, I mean, that fits nicely into the uh, memorandum of understanding that we signed with five other built environment professional bodies. You know, if we're talking about lack of standardization and agreeing what those core competencies are across the built environment, that's on us to take ownership of and say, right, accessibility, you know, should be a cornerstone within this competency. What are we all agreeing to? What's that standard we're all agreeing to and the kinds of training and CPD offerings that should be pushed across the built environment. So, I mean, this, these are great conversations that definitely should be had more and how we all align and get ourselves, you know, singing from the same hymn sheet, especially when it comes to accessibility and inclusion. I also think it's a really fast moving subject. Things we were talking about a few years ago, you know, it was all about, for example, training women up to be like the leaders should be, you know, kind of thing. And now, it, you know, 
quite rightly, we've we've switched to kind of changing the system rather than the person. You know, it used to be all about diversity and now it's more about inclusion. It used to be about equality and now it's about equity. So I think it's such a fast moving kind of subject that it's it's you've got to keep up to date with the current research that's out there. And there is a lot out there. But you can see why it's kind of it can put some people off because they're like one minute they're learning this and then it's changed and they've, they've not kept up to date with it. So it is quite a daunting task, but everybody I know that works in diversity and inclusion will happily talk to people and help support people and put them in touch with people that are, you know, important. It's, it's about collaboration, I think, in our industry rather than going it alone because we can all learn from each other. You know, I'm a DNI specialist, but I'm still learning. Every day is a learning day for me, and I'm sure you're the same, Sybil. But as well, I just wanted to touch on data because I know that the MOU is starting to look at data, and that's a really important part to look at for businesses that are just starting out. You know, we know some kind of subjects that we should be approaching, but actually, if you don't look at the data with you in your own organization, you can't then pinpoint and target the areas that you should focus on. So it's important to start looking at data, especially, you know, just look at what data you've got and what gaps you've got missing, which I think is what the professional institutions that are part of that MOU are starting to do. Absolutely. And we want to encourage, you know, firms within our remits to do the same. And on that same side of like, if you're not looking at the data, if you're not asking the right questions, you're not going to have the data sets. And I think, Vanessa, that was pretty from what I understand, the driving force behind your creation of Ability RE, if you want to get into that in terms of, you know, why you started that. And it came from a place of data and understanding who's in the profession. Yeah, it's um, it's a really big contributing factor, definitely. Um, I think the challenges, particularly around disability and neurodiversity, no one seems to be asking the same questions or trying to capture the same data. I also, you know, from personal experience, I've talked to a huge number of people across the industry in my organization and across the board when, when I've been doing this ability RE stuff. And the overwhelming comment that I get is, you know, oh, well, I've got X, Y, Z, but, you know, my team doesn't know, my line manager doesn't know, I don't want to say anything in, in case it impacts my career prospects. And what I found was that, you know, when I'm saying, well, have you, have you ticked this box that they're sort of saying, well, no, because I don't know who can see it, um, what they can use it for. Will there be repercussions for me? And the thing is with disability and neurodiversity, so much more than some other areas of DEI, I think there's a still a massive stigma that there is and that assumption that in some way you're less capable and that therefore it will have an impact on your career. And I think this in itself is, big, big roadblock to us actually even understanding our baseline of people within the industry or even within a given organization who have a disability or an impairment or a neurodiversity or a another condition that impacts their daily work and their daily life. And we really need to just raise the awareness. So, you know, and start to get rid of that stigma so people can feel that they can even just ask for that adjustment or that accommodation without feeling like they're somehow being a burden to their company, you know, because actually the burden is if you have an amazingly capable and intelligent person and they can't achieve their full potential for your organization, 
that's the burden, not asking for a slightly different headset or whatever it happens to be. So, yeah, the data thing, I think we really need to focus on as an industry, maybe try and figure out exactly what we would like to capture. And then at least we will have a benchmark by which we can sort of track progress. And ideally, one day, a a disability pay gap reporting would be a good one for me, I think. I'd really like to see that happen one day. That would be great to see that. And I think so, I think at the core of what what you're talking about is the data collection is critical on this, but the culture side has to come along with it. We have to be creating the cultures within our individual organizations and within the industry as a whole to enable each individual to feel safe enough to disclose that information. And until we get the culture piece right, I think the the data is still going to have gaps. And so they, they have to go hand in hand with each other. We've got to improve culture in order to improve data. Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, there's one, one thing having a sort of a physically accessible or safe space, but you also need the uh, psychologically safe space. And as you said, the behaviors and the culture and the, the line manager awareness that backs that up. Absolutely. All right. So um, I think that's that's all we have time for in this discussion. Um, I really appreciate all of you taking the time to be a part of this. Thank you for sharing your expertise with us. Um, for all those listening, please do join us for another podcast episode in the future. WebF episodes are published at the end of every month as part of the RICS podcast lineup. You can also listen to previously recorded episodes by subscribing to the RICS podcast through your preferred provider. The World Built Environment Forum is a 365-day-a-year forum. You can find out more about this and our upcoming global summit, WebF Week, which is taking place digitally from 16th to 20th of January, 2023. Subscribe to hear news and access our other content by visiting our website at www.ricsorg forward slash WebF. The theme for this year's WebF Week is Sustainable Placemaking in a Resilient Net Zero World. Thank you, everyone, for listening. 